The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you to follow in your Bible, as I always invite you to do that. I'm staying with our study in 1 Peter today on Palm Sunday because I think it is a theme that is apropos. In my Bible, the caption, man-made caption put above the second part of 1 Peter 4 says, suffering as a Christian. Peter's talking about suffering. It seems that his primary thought on suffering had to do with persecution, suffering because you were a believer. And yet I don't think the uh, meanings and the truths that he brings out here are isolated away from the idea of physical suffering, physical pain, just the brokenness of life, whatever has come your way. There are valuable words here about suffering. So in the week, as we remember our Savior's suffering in the acute fashion of the cross. We come to this text, 1 Peter 4.12 through the end of the chapter. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him give glory to God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let us, let those who suffer according to God's will and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of God. I begin with a question. Does the biblical God, the true God of love and grace, ever include suffering within our realization of his will? I hope that's not a hard question for you to answer. Because the answer is yes, indeed, he does. We're told here that we may suffer according to God's will. And all of that goes back to the great suffering that was according to God's will, the cross of Jesus Christ. This morning, if you were to spend the morning in front of your TV set and you said, well, I'm guilty 
of skipping church. You're not, obviously, you who are hearing me anyway, guilty of that. But if you decided I'm going to spend it today with my pajamas and take in some TV worship, I can guarantee you that you would hear several of the TV preachers. Names are not necessary. If you have any discernment, you can recognize those who are preaching what we call the health and wealth gospel. That gospel says as one of its core truths that if you know the true God, you will know that he wants you to have good health at all times, prosperity in all that you do, and sweet blessings in your life and all your relationships. Sad to say, Galatians chapter 1 has Paul speaking about those who preach another gospel that is no gospel at all. It is a lie. And what those TV preachers are saying is a lie. The Apostle Peter never spoke a health and wealth gospel. Instead, he gave us the true gospel to live in the midst of your own and others' suffering, in the midst of hostility from a world that does not tolerate nor gladly welcome those who claim the name of Christ. He brought a biblical gospel, and he knew that there would be some suffering for us that's simply a part of living in this world. Why, our bodies are weak, and so they have all kinds of maladies and problems and sudden illnesses, things that affect us deeply. Job said, man is born for trouble as the sparks fly upward. Gravity holds us on the earth. Gravity lets the sparks of a fire fly into the air. And Job said it's just as natural a thing as that, that we're all going to have trouble in our lives, troubled relationships, troubled health. So there's suffering that comes from no particular cause just because we are part of a bent and broken planet. But besides that, and Peter has been emphasizing suffering that comes particularly because you are known as a Christian. From the cross of his Savior, Peter learned that the sufferings of Jesus were 100% purposeful. Now, he couldn't always say that. You remember when Jesus first announced he was going to a cross where he would be beaten and whipped and rejected and betrayed and then he would die? Peter said, no, Lord, not you, not that for you. Maybe Peter once was kind of a health and wealth believer. But the cross changed his mind about that. And he knew now that God's will for our life on earth is going to include some pain. And it doesn't have to be viewed in a way that would say, well, this is Satan come to get me. Although, of course, it is the evil one who ultimately is at the root of suffering and disturbances but that he uses the words here in his text which should impress you. Let those who suffer according to God's will do something. 4.12 says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as if something strange was happening. And then in 17, he brings in a surprising word here. Verse 17, that suffering can be acting as a form of the judgment of God. 
Now we tend to think we, we have only one or we allow only one meaning for the word judgment, basically. And in most people's understanding, judgment means punishment. God's getting you for something. If you're being judged by God, you're being punished. Well, that isn't the only way that word is used in the Bible. And it's not the way it's being used here. Instead of just punishment, a basic meaning is sorting out, sorting between one thing and its opposite. I do a really weird thing. I like M&Ms. They're poison. I have to stay away from them, but I like them. If somebody gives me a little bag of M&Ms or woe betide me with my wife if I buy some, I will pour the bag out on the table, and before I eat any, I sort them out so that the colors are in separate I like, to, I like to test them and see, did they, is red as well-favored as blue or yellow or brown or whatever? I'm, I'm exercising judgment on my M&Ms, separating between them. That's what Peter is saying suffering can do. Constructively, pain separates the real Christian from the one who has a profession that crumbles immediately when pain starts. God is testing us in suffering to prove our genuineness sometimes. Today, believe it or not, I have five points, but two of them are really short. I think Peter's making a five-fold appeal to Christians enduring pain or persecution here. He urges that when we face pain or disease or hard things or social rejection, we do these things. Number one, don't be surprised. Number two, don't be dismayed. Number three, don't be deceived. Number four, don't be ashamed. And number five, don't be shaken. Let's walk through these together. First of all, he says, if you're suffering under God's will, don't be surprised. The painful trial you may be entering is not something strange. Now, the word surprise, obviously, there in verse 12, indicates a sudden encounter with something you didn't expect to encounter. If you took a trip to Tokyo, Japan, and you were strolling down the streets of Tokyo, taking in the sights, and maybe stopped at a coffee shop and came in, and there was Michael Rogers sitting at a table in Tokyo, Japan, and you'd say, Pastor, What an amazing surprise. What are you doing here in Tokyo? I might ask you the same question. We both would be surprised, wouldn't we? Well, that's the way suffering comes. It almost always bears some element of surprise from a doctor's verdict, from the sudden accident that comes when your car crashes, from the cruel word of some associate that is mocking your Christian stance for something or other. Why is this happening? Why did that happen? And why is it still happening? And why does it have to hurt so much? One reason we all face some adversity is simply because we're alive in a fallen world in weak bodies. What do you expect? Our bodies are very delicately balanced organisms. And Certainly, they are susceptible to all kinds of pains and difficulties and breakdowns. Do you think you'll somehow walk through this world in perfect health with no aches or pains until you're 95 and then lay down some night, go to sleep, and wake up in heaven? 
Less than 1% of all people probably experience that. And yet we act almost as if that's what we think is normal and what should happen to us. We live in a bent, spoiled, warlike world full of human hatred, full of human carelessness and disease and injustice and war and tragedy and all kinds of things. And you realize this past week it's, it's sobered me to realize it's the 100th anniversary of the history of World War I. I would dare say few people except students who might be studying this unit in a history class have any real concept of what World War I was about. The reason we don't have a concept is because it was about nothing. It was the most foolish war ever. It was, it was the bringing together the coincidence of a lot of rather trivial issues that made the guns of Europe start firing at one another and didn't stop. The mustard gas didn't stop until millions had given their lives, sometimes in a single battle. More than, more than a million died in one battle in Belgium. Can you even take that in? It's almost impossible. Why was that war fought? Nobody can really tell you. Other than a duke's assassination that made somebody mad and somebody else was mad and this somebody came to this person's help and this person came and pretty soon you had battle lines and trenches in France and people firing away. We live in that world. We live in the world where Syrian runways get bombed and we threaten and the Russians threaten back and what will happen next? Who knows? Suffering comes as a shock to our system and it makes us wonder about God. We say, is he there? Is he in control? Does he care? And many people stop with the questions and never get to an answer. And many shallow questions of surprise and shock knock God off his sovereign horse in their minds anyway, not for real. Eternity with God is our goal, of course, that we would be saved and spend eternity future with our Lord and God. But somehow we expect that eternity future of heaven to be translated here on the earth and we should experience it here and now. Doesn't work that way. The Bible says we're strangers and pilgrims in this sinful world, difficult world. Here we struggle, we strain, we don't realize all those perfect things that are promised to us. And we live in a world system that hates our Lord Jesus and is antagonistic to those who call him their own. So sorrow and suffering should be a norm, not a great surprise, as long as we are mortal, alien citizens living on foreign soil. Our real home is heaven. It's not here. We live like those believers in Hebrews 11 who were praised because they, quote, longed for a better country, a heavenly one. And only when they reached that, clearly, would they be home. So don't be surprised, is the first word of Peter. Secondly, in verses 13 and 14, our text says, don't be dismayed. Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, you may rejoice And if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, Peter's saying the natural thing is for people to think that suffering is 
pointless. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't teach you anything. It's just a pointless thing you have to go through. But Peter isn't saying that. He's saying that suffering, especially for people of God who believe a purposeful, sovereign God is ruling according to his own wise providence over all events, suffering positions us in a closer place to know Jesus Christ and what he endured than anything else. When things are going well for us, when we're riding along on a, on a wave of prosperity and health and have no particular hard cares, is that what is going to make us sense a closeness to Christ, our Savior? No. Jesus talked about travailing in sorrows. To travail means to experience acute agony. What, what would compare to that? Maybe possibly the pains of childbirth. Let it ask any woman who has given birth if she was travailing in agony. I would guess she would say yes indeed. But the result of her agony was a new life, a wonderful result, even though it didn't seem like it for a number of hours. And who could have guessed that the sweat and blood agony of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and then later the next day on the cross itself was in fact producing anything of value? It looked like such a senseless waste of the greatest life that ever was. And yet, after his resurrection, the world realized it was all purposeful. The purpose couldn't be seen until after the fact, but it was absolutely purposeful because the death and resurrection of Christ, of course, we know, bought eternal redemption for millions of people. Isaiah predicted it that way. Isaiah 53, 11. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. <coughs> My righteous servant, Isaiah wrote, will justify many. Very great purpose coming out of the life of Christ. So while that wasn't apparent when the suffering was going on, people of God can trust God for that. Now, it seems like 1 Peter 4.13 says that believers who are in Christ, will most likely taste at least a small taste, a small portion of the agonies of Jesus on this earth. Romans chapter 6 says we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. And many of our pains do originate from the same root of the pains of Jesus. We share him being rejected from men. We share his despair over the state of the world in unbelief. We share his pity for the victims of terror and illness and so many things. Philippians 3.10 has a great verse where Paul declares, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, but Paul knew what would take him to know that. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Paul knew there was no knowing of the resurrection without a deep consciousness of the suffering that came from the cross. A true story, it's, it's verifiable several ways that this is not a legend or a fable. A true story is told out of the second century when Christians were under heavy persecution still by Rome. There was a great preacher, and he became a bishop, a man named Polycarp. 
You may have heard of Polycarp, a famous Christian. In the second century, Polycarp was arrested for his outspoken Christian faith. And he was sentenced to be burned at the stake. But Polycarp was an old man, and they thought, well, we'll have a little mercy on him. He was told if he would only curse Christ and take an oath saying that Caesar alone was divine, he could be set free. We'll make it easy, old man. Just say, I curse Christ, and Caesar is divine. Just a few words said, and we'll let you go. Well, Polycarp's answer to his tormentors and his captives, captors was this. For 86 years I have served him, and my Christ never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? What you're asking is unthinkable. So they led him to the stake, and there's a big stake in the ground and wood piled around, and they were getting ready to tie him to the stake, probably hands behind him, I imagine, and they would tie his hands to the stake. Polycarp said, no, no, wait, please don't tie me. I need no ropes to bind me to this privilege of sharing in the sufferings of my Lord. And the record says that he died in the flames, not moving from a post to which he was not fastened. Don't be dismayed. The sufferings of Christ will be yours in some small way. And it's a privilege to share in them. Commentator Robert Layton said, It is a joyful thing to be a sharer with Christ in anything. Affliction shared with him is sweeter, Layton said, than the best pleasures of this world. My third and fourth points are very brief. Third, Peter urged in verse 15, don't be deceived as you evaluate suffering. As, as suffering and pain come to you, you're immediately going to think, why is this happening? I'm innocent. God has done this. I can't possibly understand why. Peter wrote, you should not suffer as a murderer, a thief, or any other kind of criminal. Or, he added significantly, even as a meddler. Now, to meddle in other people's affairs is a very small thing beside being a thief or a murderer. But you see, Peter's point is, are you as a Christian able to be painfully honest and not go around saying, that person did it, it's their fault, it's God's fault, isn't it ever your fault? Maybe you're suffering just because you stuck your nose in somebody else's business, Peter suggests, where it wasn't welcome. And consequences that you hadn't foreseen. You know, we cannot go through life being victims. The victim mentality is big today. Society is ready to say, oh, well, that's a disease. Uh, that isn't a choice. You, you just, uh, you're not responsible. That came through your parents' genes. Well, sometimes that's true, but often it is not. Perhaps you didn't kill anyone, but by meddling in another people's, person's affair, Peter says you might stir up difficulty that could have been avoided. That might be the reason for your suffering. Are you willing to face that possibility? We aren't just victims when painful things come. The Scripture also says whatever a man sows, he shall also reap. Now, again, we're not saying this is always the cause of suffering, but it could be. And Christians have to take that possibility seriously. 
Fourthly, don't be ashamed comes through Peter's words in verse 16 and 18, through 18. I think it's kind of the heart of the text. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. I wish somebody could sit all the TV preachers with their, you know, glossy good looks and best-selling books which say next to nothing about the real gospel of the Scripture that say God only wants good for you. He doesn't want you to ever suffer or have anything bad in your life. And you're, you're a great possibility waiting to happen, etc., etc. I wish somebody could sit them all down and say, please tell me what this verse means. If you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God and bear that name. They would say, oh, is that in the Bible? I guess I skipped that one. If you suffer as a Christian, and as a Christian, they would say Christians don't suffer or shouldn't. And Peter goes on to say, for it's time for judgment, sorting out, sifting, to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Don't be ashamed, folks, if some suffering is causing you to be sifted out. Actually, it's, it's an enactment of things that are going to happen at the last day of history when Christ returns and, and all men and women are judged for whether they belong to him or not, he's saying here that final judgment, that final separation between the sheep and the goats and the saved and the lost is actually underway now for Christians. And God is using hard things to prove whether our profession of Christ is is true or false, or is it just, you know, something we did to kind of go along with the church. Well, I'm 13 years old and all the kids my age are saying Jesus is my Savior and join the church. That's what I do. Didn't really think about it too seriously. Jesus said, by their fruits will they be known. Suffering is an opportune time for the divine evaluation of the fruit of our life. Are we suffering in a way that brings honor to God? Are we trusting Him? Or are we ashamed of Him in the midst of our pain? Fifth and finally, Peter says, don't be shaken. Verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will, there it is again, according to God's will, commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. I read widely, and I've read many ministry and missionary biographies. I'm really quite surprised that only this last week, through a reference in a, a book the name Helen Rosevere was mentioned, and I was intrigued by the mention. So who is this woman? I looked her up on Google and found some wonderful things. The story of Helen Rosevere that I have not known before, a woman who died actually just last December at age 91. Helen was born in England. She experienced conversion to Christ at age 20 when she was studying medicine at Cambridge University. Believe me, in England, if you study medicine at Cambridge University, you can write your ticket almost anywhere in the world. Helen could have been a renowned surgeon. She could have had a London practice and been distinguished somehow. Instead, she felt that God was calling her to serve as a missionary. And that call took her to what then was called the Belgian Congo. It since has been called Zaire And I believe today it's something like the Democratic Republic of Congo. 
but then it was the Belgian Congo. Helen went there, other missionaries were there, but there wasn't a lot happening in the field of health. And she gave strong leadership and sacrificial dedication until a 100-bed hospital was built where none had existed for many miles around. And then came the uprising, the Congolese revolution of the early 1960s. The Simba revolution, it was called by some. I can remember President Kennedy having to deal with this and trying to moderate it somehow, but it it was out of control. A quarter of a million Africans were killed in that civil war. Most missionaries fled the country because any white people were targets. Helen stayed. Her hospital was burned to the ground. And in 1964, Helen Roosevelt and some others were imprisoned for five months. And in that five months' time, she was subjected regularly to savage beatings, and twice she was sexually assaulted, all because she didn't flee. She believed God had called her to the Congo. After the revolution was over, Helen resumed her medical work and under her leadership a larger hospital of 250 beds instead of 100 from the earlier one was built. And a medical school was founded to train Africans as nurses and, and medical aides. You can do this if you want. Google Helen Rosevere, R-O-S-E-V-E-A-R-E, and you can find some film clips of her being interviewed before her death. I watched fascinated. Helen was asked how she, as a single, never married woman, alone on the mission field, interpreted or thought about the severe brutality that she suffered in her body as a missionary. Now, here's a condensed version of what she said. At first, I asked myself the question, was it worth it? Then Helen said, No, that was the wrong question. She concluded this. Jesus seemed to be telling me the pain and degradation I suffered from those rebel soldiers was not my suffering. It was his. All he asked from me was the loan of my body. Now I ask, Was my Lord worthy of the loan of my body to suffer for him? And I say, yes. He was and he is indeed worthy. Wow. All God asked from Helen Roosevelt was the loan of her body to suffer for him. This is Palm Sunday. We begin a new Holy Week. You've perhaps experienced dozens of them. Many of you have. I have. And we view and think about in our imagination as we take up the Scripture this week the travails, the sufferings of Jesus, betrayal by a friend, his innocent soul facing the hurricane gale of sin, collective sin of the human race, the bloody stripes of the Roman whip that nearly killed him alone, the crown of thorns on his head. We imagine him staggering along the Via Dolorosa, as it's called, with the cross beam on his shoulders, and he could not even rise back to his feet after he fell multiple times. 
And then we finally hear that desolate cry of Jesus on the cross, My God, why have you forsaken me? I don't know if he shouted it or whispered it, but it's a stark, startling call from the Son of God to tell us how low he went for us. And either you have to believe the Bible telling us that Jesus was carrying out the will of God in all of his suffering, or you have to interpret his death as a senseless waste and a cosmic tragedy. It's one or the other. It's either the epicenter of the will of God, or it's a complete human waste. Folks, the health and wealth hucksters on TV, I don't care how rich their ministry is, how big the stadium is they preach from, their gospel is no gospel at all. They are absolutely wrong. I ask you to believe Peter, who wrote here in 1 Peter 4.19, let those of you who suffer according to the will of God do what? Entrust your soul to a faithful creator while doing good. Yes, Christ's suffering was different than ours. Of course, he atoned for the sin of the world. We don't do that when we suffer. We don't even save ourselves by our suffering. But it is an opportunity in a very small arena of life for us to share privileged fellowship with our Lord through pain. And the hymn writer, believe me, got it exactly right. He got the gospel right. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. He would have to forsake his son if he's going to forsake us. And in the end, The son passed through that forsakenness and came out on the other side to the glory of God. So might we. Father, here's a subject that pertains to all of us. Some here may be right in the throes of it, saying this text is talking about me. Others, right now at least, are relatively pain-free, thinking, well, that's a good lesson, but... It's not speaking to me at the moment. I pray, O oh God, that when we come, when, because it will be when, not if, when we come to suffer, we might see that it can be according to your will. And we can trust you, even when it hurts deeply. Thank you for this lesson taught us by the Lord Jesus Christ at his cross. Amen.